Hello again. Thanks for joining us on Space Nuts. My, I'm your host, Andrew Dunkley. This is episode 355, and as we tend to do every fifth episode, we dedicate it all to audience questions, which we'll be doing today. We'll be looking at the expansion of the universe, what it's like to actually stand on an, uh, another planet. How will your eyes work? Will you see what is actually there? Will they work properly? Uh, we're going to talk about causation. We're going to, uh, run, One really fascinating question is, uh, does a planet need a moon to bear life and a few other things uh, like tumbling in space what happens there and a bunch of other stuff all coming up on this episode of space nuts 15 seconds guidance is internal 10 9 ignition sequence start space nuts 5 4 3 2 1 2 3 4 5 5 4 3 2 1 and joining me to answer all is Professor Fred Watson, astronomer at large. Hello, Fred. <laughs> good day. Is that the correct term? Good day. Uh, depends good if you're talking if you're talking English or Australian. Good day, Andrew. Good day. That's no, just good, it's good day. Soft on the G. <laughs> yeah, soft on the G. That's right. Yeah, it's amazing though when you're overseas, particularly Canada and the US, how many people try to say it to you <laughs> because they know you're an Aussie. Please, please don't. Well, I do too. Good night. <laughs> uh, no, it's it's just just a thing, isn't it? We're known for saying it. So yes, that's right. And we do. It's just a part of our natural vernacular, isn't it? Exactly. So yeah. Anyway, uh, we've got a heck of a lot to cover. Did you have some homework from last week that you wanted I did. to deal with? I did. Oh, okay. Yes. Well, let's knock that over first. Do you want to hear that? Sure. Okay. We had a question from, uh, I think it was, uh, where are we? Yes, it was Rusty. Ah, well, he's, he's, got a, he's got another one for us. This Has he? Yeah. <laughs> and he was talking about, um, I think he'd read a, a, about a white dwarf star that was 10 billion years old. Yeah. Um, but that contradicts all. The, the problem with white dwarf stars is that they are the end product of normal stars like the sun. So you only get a white dwarf when the star runs out of its energy and it is by then about 10 billion years old. So the star is about 10 billion years old. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, universe uh, is only, is only 13 billion years old. That's right. So if, if you've got a white dwarf that's 10 billion years old, and I think that was the number, uh, then you can't have you know, a star that's gone through its life and then formed a white dwarf, and that was 10 billion years ago, because that makes 20 billion years and the universe isn't that old. Yeah. And I, I think that uh, it may well be that what Rusty read, I don't know because I'm not in Rusty's head, but what he read was that maybe the age of the star is 10 billion years before it forms the white dwarf. Uh, maybe. That would make more sense. The, the record breaker for a white dwarf, in other words... Uh, a star that is that has become a white dwarf at the end of its long life, it's turned into a white dwarf. Uh, that record is um, an object whose name I had uh, in front of me a minute ago. I wonder if I can find it again, uh, because uh, it's not it's not the kind of name that you come across every day. Okay, uh, it is called LSPM J zero two zero seven plus three 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 one. Right, that's the oldest white dwarf star. And it is thought to be 3 billion years old. So 
Uh, that means, you know, if its progenitor star did last 10 billion years, uh, then it, it turned into a white dwarf having shed its outer envelope. Uh, then you've you've got three billion years, and it still means it's within the age of the universe. So at, yes. at that age, it whinges about everything, blames the government for everything, and thinks young yeah. people have no idea. Yeah, yeah, just just like me, no, young not, stars have like... no idea today. <laughs> Don't do any of those things. <laughs> All right, uh, was it was there another one? Yes, there was about um, what you would see inside a black hole, and that. Oh, if you were trying to look out. Yes, well, mm. you, but you wouldn't be in the black hole because the black hole is a singularity. And once you're in there, you've had it. Uh, but you would be within the event horizon. And it turns out that the gravitational distortion is so much uh, that the singularity itself, which is black, fills your entire field of view because of uh. the gravitational distortion. So it's dark. You'd see dark nothing. inside the event horizon. That's right. Mm. Okay. <laughs> Very good. All right. I like this homework situation well it means you get a better answer than the one that i pull off the top of my head which is the usual scenario you're very tough on yourself for it based of course on uh, nearly 60 years of astronomical experience but that's right yes yes as against four billion years of astronomical (laughs) which is coming next yes all right let's uh get stuck into our questions and the very first one comes uh from in fact these first two are related but they're different questions the uh, first one comes from gary hi guys it's gary from sale in manchester in england uh obviously love the podcast love this it's one of my favorites i'll listen to it all week and i want to look forward to listening to it but i do have a question um and i was hoping you may help or maybe it's just a theory or just a bit of moments of madness so the the universe is expanding or the edge of the universe is expanding at faster than the speed of light um what I was wondering, could this be caused by the fact that um, space itself between here and that point actually has, is not, it is a vacuum, obviously, but is there a density to it which is created by uh, dark matter? And obviously, as there isn't anything to which is therefore restricting light or anything to travel beyond the speed of light. But at the end of the universe, there is no, there's nothing there restricting it. No dark matter or energy or anything. And is space... Um, is space therefore being, having the ability to expand? I was also wondering um, if that could be influenced by heat. So at the end of the universe, uh, I would assume that it's on the, the premise of the universe, it's um, free or a bit more, you know, below to the point where there is no measurement on um, heat, um, and therefore does that give it the ability to expand? And as soon as you put any anything anything above minus two seven three into the equation, does that therefore force it to be? Um, some form of restriction on the on the ability therefore dark matter is, is influenced by something else anyway a bit bonkers but hopefully you can um give you something about and, and, and let us know what you think oh. uh okay uh thank you gary um bit bonkers he thinks his questions a bit bonkers um it, it, it's a big one it's a yeah, big it's question got, it's got lots to it uh, yeah. but lo- lovely to hear that uh that northern england uh, the, the flat va- flat vowels that uh I've had all my life. <laughs> and um, I'm just going to do a quick aside, uh, harking back to something that we were talking about a few minutes ago. The yeah. Australian way is G'day. Yep. Uh, where I grew up in Bradford in the north of England, the, the greeting was, now then. Oh, really? Now then. I thought you were going to say, ew. No, no, it's, <laughs> that's, that's Liverpool, isn't it? <laughs> no. Well, it's, it's ups different. That's a, Ayup. That, that's... Um, that's a that's an alert signal. Hey up, 
uh, oh. whereas uh, hello translates to now then, uh, really? which is now then. Yeah, and that was it. Usually that's all you got, now then. Wow. <laughs> Gosh, and, and I'm sure Gary, um, listening to this from sale in Manchester, might, I think it's probably very similar in Manchester. It is across the across the border, of course, the Lancashire-Yorkshire border. But yeah. Yeah, now then. So I should, I should use that when we start the show, shouldn't I? You should. Yeah. yeah. Oh, so okay. the trouble is, People where I grew up, uh, um, they don't say much, and quite often now then is all you got. <laughs> so let's move on to the question. Indeed, <laughs> about the edge of the universe. Well, yeah. So the, I mean, the horizon that really stops us from seeing any further into the universe is the uh, cosmic microwave background radiation, uh, and in a sense that tallies with what Gary's saying because. Uh, that horizon is actually receding from us at the speed of light. Mm. Uh, uh, it's all the time it is moving away from us at the speed of light, which sounds crazy. Uh, but uh, it's currently 13.8 billion light years away um, in the sort of in the reference frame that we're, we're uh, you know, that, that, that we can understand. Um, it's uh, so uh, th- there is a point beyond which we cannot see and it is it's flooded with radiation. Now, that radiation permeates the whole universe and probably the universe beyond the horizon as well because it's the same thing. It's, it's a radiation that comes from the Big Bang that you're, wherever you are in the universe, you're looking back so far in time that you're seeing that sphere of radiation surrounding you. You're in a bubble. Uh, and I call the cosmic microwave background radiation the cosmic wallpaper because it's behind everything that we can see. All the yeah. galaxies, stars, planets, everything is in front of that. So that's a horizon. And um, the idea of, uh, because it's a radiation, it, it, it's got a temperature um, and the temperature is 2.7 degrees above absolute zero. That's the temperature of space. Wow. And, and it's the same everywhere. And so, you know, Gary's point, our idea about the, the warm universe being, uh, or, or the, the, the outer, the sort of beyond beyond the horizon being colder than, uh, than what we are uh, doesn't really hold up because, in fact, mm. beyond that horizon, it's it's hotter than what we are because you're looking back at the Big Bang itself. Yeah. Uh, so the, the but 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 the temperature in our area is 2.7 degrees uh, above absolute zero. So I think um, uh, you know the, there is a the the, the pressure that uh, that Gary speaks of is is essentially um, the radiation the dark energy that we don't really know too much about. Dark mm. matter behaves like normal matter does as far as gravity is concerned, and it pulls back on the acceleration of the universe. It tries to slow it down. But the dark energy, the energy of, the, of space itself, uh, that springiness of space, is fighting against that and wins easily because it's about 75% of the mass energy budget of the universe. Mm. So... Some interesting ideas there, Gary, and I'm glad you um, you, you sent sent that to us because you formulated things in a in a in a different way. But the bottom line is, I think we're still baffled about what dark energy and dark matter are. Yeah, um, and uh, we still have a universe whose edge we've never seen, and which may not have any kind of limit. It's it may be infinite, and we don't know the answer to that. Yeah, if there is an edge and it's moving out at the speed of light. If we knew the actual size of the universe, it would be just unthinkable as to how much bigger it's getting every split second. 
Yeah. Um, in fact, that's sort of that it. You can say that about the cosmic microwave background radiation, the, mm. the way that is receding from us at the speed of light, um, and you can, you can't you can't see anything beyond that. And but if you were in a different part of the universe, you'd still see it receding from us at the speed of light, and it look as though it's thirteen point eight billion light years away. Mm. Um, but but because the universe is so big, um, we really don't know what's beyond it and how far on it goes. No. It's a big question, and uh, thank you, Gary, for sending it in to us, uh, which leads to another question from Rod. On large scales, the universe is expanding by increasing the amount of space where whatever force is causing the universe to expand, that force is greater than gravity. I uh, hope that makes sense. However, if space itself is expanding and time is bound up with space to be space-time, does this mean that on those large cosmic scales, time is also being created along with space. In other words, the very fabric of space is being created. Or is the existing fabric of space being stretched? And what does that mean for time or the time part of space that is being stretched? Would time run slower in that stretched space? Uh, thank you very much, Rod. And thanks for signing up. He's become a patron. We really appreciate that kind That's of support. Right. So thank you very much uh, indeed, Rod. And uh, that too is a very interesting um, way of thinking about the expansion of the universe. Yeah. So time is bound up with space in this thing we call space-time. Uh, but it, what's interesting is that to talk about an expansion, you're talking about a rate, something happening at a rate, and a rate always um, tells you that time is in the in the denominator. So it's something divided by time is gives you a rate, uh, and so time's kind of in there twice, which is a bit odd. Mm. Um, maybe it cancels out. <laughs> uh, so, but you know, we think in in cosmology, we do think more in terms of the expansion of space itself. Um, that. Um, Rod's right. Uh, I didn't pick up where the Rod's from, actually. Um, I didn't say. He, he didn't tell us. <laughs> no. I don't uh, think it came up on the email. Maybe not. Mm. Um, not that that makes any difference. The answer to the question could be different if you're in Lancashire, though. Uh, the, um, the, the the idea is that um, uh, the, the the universe, yes, what, what I was going to say was if you, if you think about um, rest frames, that's what you've got to get your head around in terms of the relativistic ideas. So we are in a rest frame that is kind of sitting there quite at peace with the universe, well, most of it, and, yep. and sort of uh, watching watching all this motion take place. Uh, but if you think about the, um, the fact that uh, when you look back in, in time, which we are doing with our telescopes, then you're looking at a different rest frame and and even if time was behaving in the same way then, it would look slightly different to us. Um, and we see that. We see that effect in the way galaxies evolve and the way they behave. You have to put in a sort of relativistic correction because of the different um the, the, the different reference frame that we're in. And, and it's, I'm kind of making a bit of a hash of this because it's it's quite a complicated question. But the bottom line is uh, you know, it's probably easiest to think in terms of just space when we think of the expansion of the universe. Uh, mm. And time will change, but um, by amounts less than what you might think uh, in terms of, you know, the time dilation, the gravitational time dilation, things of that sort. I suppose the best 
instance of it is when you look at, um, and I think this is going the right way. When you look at the, um, the, 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 the steps in the earliest phase of the universe's life, we talk about all these things happening, but they happen within 10 to the minus 33 of a second or something mm. like that. So everything is really squashed up. Uh, and uh, I think should check this, but probably part of that is because of the relish, relativistic effects. Okay. I hope Rod understood what you just said. Because I, I, I wish I did. I completely bamboozled. Uh, the, um, there you go. Well, <laughs> can we get tuned in next week, listeners? You'll <laughs> be baffled again. Yeah, that's part of the job. Um, thank you, Rod. Um, I appreciate it, and uh, we we appreciate you becoming a patron. So yeah. uh, that, that's terrific. That's uh, next can, question: cancel his membership after that. <laughs> uh, next question comes from Janus. Hello, space nuts. I'm Janus from Sweden. I think the most evocative data from space exploration are the images and videos from the landings on foreign planets and moons, like Venera on Venus the Mars rovers, and Huygens on Titan. They make me imagine that I stand there at these places and look at the surroundings. But what would I actually be able to see in those places? Venus has a very thick atmosphere that probably blocks much light. Mars is further from the sun than Earth, and Titan is even further. How bright would an unaided eye perceive these places to be? Would it be too dark to see anything? You can assume that I stand in each of these places at the equator at noon. How well would I see? Thank you for a good show. Thank you, Janus. It's an interesting question, and eyes come up in astronomy and space science a lot because when you're off the planet, it's one of the things that's at risk. Uh, eyesight uh, or your eyes in general physically can be affected by zero gravity in orbit. Mm -hmm. uh, and there have been documented problems with that. Uh, and I imagine if you're on another planet um, and the gravity is different, you'd face the same perils. But how would your eyes work properly in a different environment? Yeah. So putting that to one side slightly you you're absolutely right gravity you know we we know from uh, what's happened on the international space station that zero gravity actually affects eyesight hmm. uh, and um all the uh, objects that yanis mentioned except venus has a uh, different gravitational pull from ours so th but that that's the kind of thing that is a long term effect it's something that you know affects your eyesight over time it doesn't affect the perception at the time because your eyes still work pretty well uh, in those conditions. Um, but he's right that um, all of these worlds would probably be dimmer than what we see on a bright sunny day here on Earth. Uh, certainly Venus has these thick clouds. Um, Venus isn't somewhere you want to hang around anyway. No. Uh, but the, the Venera uh, spacecraft all used visible light as their you know, to, to, to take the images that they took and you can see details on the surface uh, pretty well as, as, as you would um, with a camera here on Earth. Mars, again, further away from the sun, clear skies, but further away from the sun. So the radiation's lower. Uh, and Titan uh, with um, the Huygens probe landing on Titan, further away still and pretty gloomy, really. Mm. But uh, having said all that, 
if you were transported there, um, I'm pretty sure that you would see pretty clearly uh, during the day. And the reason I say that is the our eye has an incredible uh, range of sensitivity. Yeah. It can cope with uh, the brightness of a summer day. It can cope with starlight, uh, which is millions of times fainter. And our eye is so adaptable to these different light levels um, that you would, you know, you would see, uh, you would see, you, you would still see things pretty well during the day on those worlds. Um, I, I, I was reminded of this actually um, a couple of months ago, nearly, uh, yeah. on the when I was watching the solar eclipse, the total eclipse of the sun on the twentieth of April, uh, and that you're seeing more and more of the sun's disk being covered by the moon as the as it progresses. It's about an hour and a half uh, for the moon to cover the entire disk of the sun, and during that period, um, you don't you really do not notice the drop in illumination. Towards the end, you do. You start seeing a kind of grayness about the landscape. Yeah. It's different in color. But your eye is kind of keeping up with the changes in brightness. Uh, and you know that, you know, 95% of the sun's disk is obscured and you can see, still see perfectly well around yeah. your surroundings. Uh, so um, yeah, the eye is really astonishing in the way it adapts to different, uh, different environments. And I'm sure it would on all these worlds. Yeah. Didn't you, I think you told me not so long ago that the eye is so powerful that uh, it could see as little as one photon? Uh, there has been experiments, yes. Yeah. We, uh, we did talk about it a year or so ago that um, um, uh, some physiology experiment demonstrated that the eye responded to one photon, which is incredible. Mm. Amazing. Yeah. It is incredible. That's right. I've forgotten that, Andrew. Thank you for reminding yeah. me. That's all right. That's what I'm here for. Yes. Occasionally useful. Uh, thank you, Giannis. Uh, really love that question. It's a, it's a good one. This is Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Professor Fred Watson. Our sponsor, NordVPN, is a great option if you're looking for a virtual private network to protect your personal information, your bank accounts, anything you do online, basically. And it's as simple as signing up. And of course, as a Space Nuts listener, you can sign up with uh, extra benefits. Just go to nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and get the deal. Now, first and foremost, you get a 30-day money-back guarantee. They back their gear and uh, they are certainly one of the best, if not the best, in the business. And it works on all the platforms, major platforms, Windows, Apple devices, uh, Android devices, smart TVs, um, you name it. And they are global. So it doesn't matter where you are in the world, you'll be able to access a NordVPN server. They're fast, they're efficient, they don't break down. You can secure six devices with a single account. It is really a good idea, especially if you travel, to have a virtual private network protecting your mobile phone or your tablet. I've got mine on all the time. So whenever I'm online uh, outside the house, I have uh, NordVPN on, on my mobile phone and my tablet, and I strongly advise you to do the same. And you can uh, get a deal uh, as a Space Nuts listener, as I said, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts. That'll take you to a page where there's uh, some information about the, uh, the services they offer. Then you can click on Get the Deal and you can see what option suits you. You might not need all the products that they offer, 
So uh, you can sign up for a, a, a lesser deal. But if you want all the bells and whistles, that's available too. Now, the longer you sign up for, the cheaper it gets. And uh, another benefit as a Space Nuts, list, Space Nuts listener is you get four extra months at no cost. So check it out today, uh, nordvpn.com slash spacenuts and uh, enjoy the benefits of a virtual private network. Okay, we checked all four systems and keying with a go. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, uh, we were, we'll just sort of continue on because we've got so many questions to get through and uh, we mentioned Rusty earlier. Rusty sends in questions semi-regularly um, and again, throwing us a curveball. He's Rusty. Hey, Fred and Andrew. It's Rusty in Donnybrook, looking at a perfectly clear night sky here. And I've been noticing that the plane of the ecliptic uh, seems to intercept due east and west, uh, about midway between summer solstice and the autumnal equinox here. And uh, probably the reverse happens between the vernal equinox, the spring equinox, and the summer solstice again. So I'm just wondering if you could enlighten us a bit more on that. And, um, yeah, still haven't been able to work out why Fred hasn't got a knighthood for being the most influential practical astronomer alive today. And Andrew probably should get some sort of award for creating this podcast about the best podcast ever. Cheers. (laughs) See you guys. Thanks, Rusty. Oh, he's so nice. Um, <laughs> the plane of the elliptic. Ecliptic, yeah. Ecliptic, yeah. So, oh, that's what I said. Uh, please explain. So, so um, Rust is commenting on when it lies, I think he's com- commenting on when it lies due east-west. Yeah. Um, which is when it crosses the equator. So the equator of the sky, which is just an extension of Earth's equator, out into space, uh, that uh, crosses the horizon anywhere on Earth, due east and due west, mm-hmm. uh, because it's the equator. Uh, so the celestial equator, the equator of the sky, goes directly over your head when you're on the equator of the Earth, because, as I said, it's just an extension of the Earth's equator into space. Now, the ecliptic, the path of which the sun takes throughout the year, is inclined at that to the equator at 23 and a half degrees. So as the year progresses, uh, the ecliptic is going to um, cross the east and west point. In fact, it says the day progresses because it happens every 24 hours. Um, you, you'll get the, this this uh, this point um, uh, where the ecliptic crosses the equator, which rejoices in the name of the ascending and descending nodes of the ecliptic. Node is, node is a word that means it's short for no displacement, and so uh-huh. that, what that means is it's not displaced from the from the equator at those points. It's crossing them. Yeah. So um, if you've got, uh, I can't remember the details of what Rusty's question was, but you can kind of work it all out from there, uh, because if you have this, you know, if you imagine sunset and you imagine it's at the equinoxes, then the sun is actually crossing the equator. So the mm. sun sets due due west. It means that on the other side of the sky, the ecliptic is also crossing uh, due east, um, and so you know, and vice versa. So it's just a question of being able to imagine um, how the how the tilt of the uh, of the ecliptic w- works its way around the sky. 
Um, I'd suggest the, the be- one of the best ways to visualize all this and get your head around it is to use a planisphere. Uh, you know, the little star wheels that you've got. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, because they usually have the ecliptic marked on them uh, and uh, they certainly have the equator marked on them. Well, if it's a good one, it does. And so you can see, you know, you can see what times of year you're going to have it crossing, crossing the uh, uh, the, the, the horizon. Um, at, no matter whether it's crossing the uh, the whether it's the ascending or descending node or not, you can see when the ecliptic crosses the horizon. Mm. Is is there a visual effect when you witness this, or is it just you know, yeah, it's just like every other day? It's just, Geometry, yeah, it's just like every other day. Yeah. You wouldn't notice unless you were watching carefully what the sun was doing throughout the year. Okay. It's why, you know, what, what we're talking about is why the sun's rising and setting points shift along the horizon. Mm. Uh, so, you know, in, in our summertime, the sun shifts towards the north on the, on the horizon. Uh, and in our wintertime, it shifts towards, to, towards the south. Yeah, some ancient civilizations had built calendars on that basis, haven't they? With uh, the, you know, put rocks on the on the hills to pinpoint yeah. where the sun is at certain right. times yeah. of the year. Yeah. Mm. Very good. Yeah, half. All right, thank you, Rusty. Uh, another um, headache creating question. Now, uh, this is a big one. We've uh, this one's been doing the rounds on our social media platforms, and a lot of people chatting about this. Uh, it is Matt, and he's asking about causation. Hi, Frank and Andrew. This is Matthew from Adelaide, South Australia. Um, I'd like to ask the question is, what is the connection between the speed of light and causation? I've been thinking about this now for a couple of days and it's been really been sort of been doing my head in. So I'm hoping you guys can help me out. Thank mm. you. Okay, thanks, Matt. Take it away, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Martin. Well... Uh, in answer to your question, <laughs> um, the, there's a technical term that I want to use that I'm going to have to look up. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's another easy one. Uh, the, the, well, it, yes, it's it, it, look the, the the bottom line, and uh, um, the, the best way to to think of this is to think about diagrams. Uh, but um, and that's what I was just looking for there, and I'm time to find it. So, why? What's the speed of light have to do with causation? And it's all about the fact that the speed of light is the speed of information. So um, you, um, so if you if you um, think of an event taking place uh, within our range of visibility, let me put it that way. Yeah. Um, so supposing let, let's say something something happens to the to the sun um, now. If something happened to the sun now, uh, we wouldn't know about it for eight minutes because of the length of time it takes the light to get to us. Yeah. And so um, if you, but if you put the sun further away than eight light minutes, I'm not going to be able to explain this very well without looking at a diagram. Uh, There are regions where um, you can put the sun and it can't talk to us, and oh. so there's no causality. Uh, you know, the, the, it's it's to do with the. It's basically to do with um, space and time. And the, the, the diagram I'm thinking of is a plot, uh, which has uh, time going on one axis, usually the vertical axis, mm. and space going the horizontal axis. And um, if you've got a a, a, re, a region within which you can see, 
uh, which is getting bigger uh, as you go up the time axis. So you've got something, you can think of it as a line at 45 degrees. And everything on one side of that line uh, can have a causal influence on you because it's within the uh, the time that uh, light will get to travel to you. But everything outside it won't uh, because, because it, it, it's not, connected to you by the speed of light. I really am explaining this very, very badly, Andrew. Uh, but it's I, worth, I wouldn't know. <laughs> it's worth going to the web uh, just to have a look. Uh, the, the reason why I was looking was because these diagrams have a name and that's what's eluded me at the moment. But before the end of the show, I'll find it and we'll work out what it's called. Okay. <laughs> probably, called right. a, probably called a space-time diagram. That would be the easiest one. Possibly is. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> um, okay. So, that yeah, that that's... Um... Yeah, it's a very another confusing one, I suppose, from from my standpoint. Um, but yeah, it's certainly got people talking about it online. Yeah, um, I think it's called a Minkowski diagram. Uh, oh, okay. Minkowski, who's the mathematician who proposed it. Uh, but we will see. Yes, that's it. That's it. Mm, that is it. All right, go and go and look it up. Or space time diagram does it actually. That tells you, and that gives you really the insights into what can cause things uh, because the information can get to you and what can't because the information can't get to you. Okay. Fascinating. All right. There you go, Matt. Uh, thanks for such an easy question too. Now uh, let's uh, move on to a question, a text question from Miranda. Uh, is there an assumption that an Earth-like planet or habitable water world would require a moon to help create tides like we have on Earth to enable life in the ocean? Or does it not matter if a planet has tides to have life. Uh, in other words, does a planet need a moon to have life, particularly in its oceans? Yeah, a great question, Miranda, and one that's certainly uh, thought about uh, long and hard by astrobiologists. Um, so it's not the tides that are the issue here. Um, so you could certainly envisage a planet that doesn't have tides, uh, that could form life. Um, we do think, in the case of the Earth, that it was the tides that actually allowed life to migrate from being ocean-dwelling uh, to being on land, because what the tides do is they give you this zone uh, where sometimes it's wet and sometimes it's dry, and it's kind of intermediate zone mm. between the ocean and the land. Uh, so... Um, for, for us on Earth, it may be that we're land dwellers because of the tides, because our very, very distant ancestors crawled out of the sea uh, and had an environment that was kind of benign because it was um, it was wet and it was going to be wet again, a lot wetter soon, uh, the high tide every 12 hours. Uh, and so the, um, the, the, the thinking is that, yes, perhaps tides played an important role in the evolution of life from being ocean-dwelling to land-dwelling. However, that, uh, ah. there is a bit more to the question than that because um, we think that the moon has helped to stabilize the Earth's axis of rotation. I mentioned yeah. a little while ago that the Earth's equator is tilted to the ecliptic, the plane of the, of the Earth's orbit, by 23.5 degrees, and that's actually the tilt of the Earth's poles with respect to the plane of its orbit, or perpendicular to the plane of its orbit, if you want the the, the, the full thing. So um, the Earth's tilted over at 23.5 degrees. It's what gives us seasons. But uh, the, the moon is thought to have 
stabilize that tilt uh, because on the planet Mars, where there are two tiny, tiny moons that have no effect whatsoever on the planet's rotation, mm. Mars has actually changed its tilt uh, over relatively short periods, probably tens to hundreds of thousands of years. Its tilt has moved. Um, and that would be a very bad thing for any evolving species because you've suddenly got this whole new regime of seasons yeah. um, and not uh, the kind of stability that, that you need. So a big moon like ours, our moon is 180th of the mass of the Earth. Uh, it's a quarter of its diameter. It's, it is a substantially large object. Uh, that is thought to have acted almost like a flywheel as it rotates, sorry, revolves around the Earth uh, and, and kept our axial tilt stable. So um, maybe a big moon is something that will be very desirable for the evolution of life but it yeah. might not be essential. We simply don't know because we've got a, an example of one uh, ourselves. But yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a great question and certainly one that's um, in the minds of astrobiologists. Yeah, yeah I suppose it uh, is circumstantial. Like if life developed on a planet that didn't have a substantial moon, it would adapt to that environment and yeah. perhaps thrive under whatever circumstances. Yes, but it might evolve in a very different way because it, uh, it, you know, if the tides are the reason we ended up on land, yeah, uh, that might not happen there. Yeah, um, yeah, it's a it's a really interesting conundrum. It is. Mm. Thank you, Miranda, and uh, I think that wraps up segment two. I think it does. Yes, it does. Um, gosh, I'm, I'm losing my place. We've been all over the place today. There's been a lot to talk about. This is Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and Professor Fred Watson. Let's take a small break from the program just for a moment to talk about our sponsor, Curiosity Stream. Now, if you love documentaries, this is the streaming service for you. It uh, covers just about every uh, facet of documentaries uh, that you can think of. And of course, as a Space Nuts listener, I'm sure space is at the top of your list. And uh, I'm just looking through the documentary list now for space and space science specific documentaries on Curiosity Stream, and uh, they're all fascinating. I, I want to watch the lot. Um, of course, the Moon is the subject of much interest at the moment. Uh, so there's a documentary called Destination Moon, which is an original Curiosity Stream production. Uh, th there's an interesting one. Uh, you know how much I love what if questions. Well, um, there's a documentary called A World Without NASA which I, uh, I haven't really looked into, but I, I'm intrigued. What would it be like if NASA didn't exist? Uh, the Mars InSight mission is the subject of a, a documentary called Seven Minutes to Touchdown, and Fred and I have talked often about those uh, seven minutes of, um, of terror as uh, objects break through the Martian atmosphere and, and touch down, some of them don't make it, of course. Uh, there's documentaries about exoplanets and uh, uh, dragon spacecraft and uh, climate uh, eclipses. Um, there's just so many. Uh, and you can check them all out at curiositystream.com. Uh, and, and you can watch it through uh, multiple devices. Uh, so it's very easy. You can log in on your PC, your, uh, your phone, your, um, uh, your pad, iPad, um, tablet, whatever you want to call it. You can also watch it through uh, Xbox and Smart TVs and Apple TV and Amazon Fire and Roku. 
so many options in so many categories. So uh, if you want to take advantage of the offer, there's a special URL and it'll get you 25% off as a Space Nuts listener. So curiositystream.com slash Space Nuts and then you use the code code word Space Nuts for 25% off an annual plan. curiositystream.com slash Space Nuts and the code Space Nuts. You can sign up today with our sponsor, Curiosity Stream. Space Nuts. Radio, uh, we will um, continue with our uh, questions and uh, we are going to the next one. Oh, shock horror. It's about black holes. This is, uh, this is from Stefan. Hi, guys. Stefan here from the north coast of Ireland. Uh, big fan. Um, I've just got like a quick question. It's uh, just an impo- as an impossible thought experiment. Um, nothing can escape from a black hole, okay? This is what we say. So what if you had two supermassive black holes passing each other at quite a close distance, but with uh, enough escape velocity that they weren't going to get sucked into each other's gravity. So two supermassive black holes passing each other really fast. And then imagine you had like one small, like maybe one, one sun sized black hole in the middle. Um, would the gravity of the two supermassive black holes not be able to rip apart one small, relatively small black hole and uh, um, send its contents, like rip apart its contents and send it flying out? If you get what I'm trying to say, I don't know if you want to talk about it or what you think. Thanks, guys. Love you. Uh, I love you too. Um, we don't want to talk about it. <laughs> Well, okay, we've got three black holes by the sound of it. You've got two supermassive black holes that are sort of passing each other and the poor little one in the middle. Um, and he's wondering if the power of the two, uh, which would be equal, would counter any impact on the one in the middle. Is that what he's saying? Yeah, that's right. So um, I reckon they'd all rip each other to, th- to shreds. <laughs> that's that's what I reckon. Yeah. So, I mean... Um... You know that they're, they're, they're passing so near to each other that they they're, they're not going to, or so fast that they're not going to merge. Um, so yeah, there's even in extreme gravity, there would be a gravitational null point, um, which is akin to our Lagrange points that we often oh, talk about. You know, okay. it's the same sort of thing. There's a, little, a null point between the Earth and the Sun, um, and if you put something there, it it's basically feels no gravity but um it's it's something that is not particularly stable you can't put something there and just leave it there mm. uh, because it'll tend to move about drift. it'll be drift, drifting out which is why the james webb telescope which is at the second lagrange point on the other side of the earth from the sun has to have thrusters to keep it you know keep it on an even keel uh, so that's all uh, that's what happens with things that aren't black holes. So, um, it, I, I, to be honest, I don't know what the answer will be. You know, you've got a gravitational low point, um, but you've also got, with black holes, they're not, yes, it's a singularity, but it's got all this other baggage that it carries around with it. <laughs> yes. It's a swirling around. And all of that would They're just affect, huge bag ladies, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> that's what they all are. All of that would affect the location of the the null point, which may be blurred out completely, uh, yeah. and you know your you, your poor sun-sized black hole in the middle there uh, almost certainly would move one way or the other and get sucked into one of them. 
uh, or ripped apart. But it's a nice, a nice thought experiment. It is, and and um, and I do quite like thinking about things like that. Yeah, I love the way people come up with ideas for questions. Like there's been some real pearlers today. It's uh, it's been yeah, great. I have. That's right. Mm. Keeping me going. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, did, he didn't get to rehearse them. This is all. This is all blind. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll move on uh, to. Oh well, no introduction needed. Hello, space nuts. Martin Berman Gorvine here, writer extraordinaire in many genres, including science fiction. And today's question is a relatively straightforward one for my current science fiction novel, in which my heroine just destroyed a, a an interstellar spacecraft that was powered by a fusion motor so she caused a thermonuclear explosion and the shock wave hit her spacecraft and sent it into a tumble I'm going to presume that she was far enough away not to get killed by the radiation. So my question is about the tumbling. I have read that there is no dizziness when you tumble in space because your inner ear and what you see are not in conflict. So I wanted to check on this. Um, my research, the one solid thing I found was about the uh, Gemini 8 incident in which Neil Armstrong saved the day. So can't wait for the answer. Berman Gorvine, over and out. Thank you, Martin. Uh, I love his questions. He's, he's always thinking outside the box. My first uh, command as um, the, the uh, captain of that spaceship would be to engage inertial dampeners. Yeah, well, that's right. That would be it. That would be that would be that would be the first thing. Yeah, but uh, yeah, um, yeah. What happens when you tumble in space? Do you uh, not really feel the effect like you would tumbling on Earth, chasing cheese down the hills near Gloucester in the UK, for example? What on Earth brought that up? Um... Because uh, <laughs> well, it, it happened last week. Okay, and a woman won her um, championship unconscious because she knocked herself out. Oh dear me! Still crossed the line. <laughs> yeah, I didn't see that. <laughs> I didn't hear about that. That's uh, that's tumbling to the nth degree, but it, it, um, yeah, tumbling in space. Well, not in space. That's right. So, Martin, I don't know the answer to this because it's kind of physiology rather than uh, astrophysics. But um, I, I take your point about the disconnect between the gravity vector, because there isn't one, and your uh, the, which your inner ear responds to, and uh, your your vision. But my guess is you'd still feel feel pretty sick. Yeah, um, you know, people um, experiencing the uh, the those um, zero g parabol parabolic flights that are often used to give people an idea what weightlessness is weightlessness is like. Um, the 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 aircraft's called a vomit comet, and that's because you know even though you're not feeling gravity, uh, your insides are you know so sort of confused by what's going on yeah. Uh, that yeah you throw up uh, and i bet your heroine throws up as well oh yeah you better write that into the story yeah. we we want space vomit we want space vomit <laughs> with a 
an acknowledgement to the the the, the, the chief space vomiters, <laughs> him and me. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I think you'd get tossed around a lot too, wouldn't you? If the, if there's if the thing's tom- tumbling, um, yeah, and and you're inside it, you're going to get bounced around. You're going to hit things. Things are going to hit you. Yeah, it wouldn't That's be right. pretty. No, it wouldn't. It would not be pretty. That's right. Uh, all right. Yeah, indeed. Uh, you would. You probably have to have magnetic boots or something. <laughs> um, yes. All right. Thank you, Martin. Not sure we helped, but uh, yeah, I, 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 the inertial dampeners definitely the way to go there. Uh, and finally, we have a text question from Robert, who is in Vienna, Austria, and he says, "What aspects of our universe determine the speed of light in a vacuum? Are we lucky?" that the number is almost exactly 300,000 kilometres per second and easy to remember? Or have units been chosen to make this a nice number? And do we have uh, uh, do we have to feel sorry for people in a multiverse where the speed of light is probably something nasty like 215,335 kilometres per second? Love your show. Cheerio, Robert from Vienna. <laughs> where I was a, a few months ago, yeah. It was a lovely, lovely city. In fact, my colleagues... Uh, uh, with whom I spent time in Vienna in February at the Copper Science and Technical Subcommittee. They're there at the moment uh, on the main committee on the peaceful uses of outer space. Uh, so uh, it's a nice uh, reminder to have the thinking, mm. thinking about uh, about the um, you know the, the, the lovely surroundings in Vienna. Uh, okay, and while we've been talking, I've just brought up the speed of light in kilometers per second, 299,792.458 kilometers per second. So it's not really a round number. No. Um, And it's, it's, yes, it's comfortably close to 300,000, but it certainly wasn't chosen to be that uh, because the the meter is defined in terms of the circumference of the Earth. Uh, That's how you work out what a meter is. You take the planet and you divide it up into... Well, it will be forty thousand, I think, for for kilometers. Is that right? Anyway, uh, it so it, you know it comes from a different, a completely different um, uh, sort of fundamental quantity, okay. if I can put it that way. And it just turns actually, out. Actually, Fred, can, sorry, can I interrupt? Yeah, um, yeah. Um, I need you to go back because I dropped out and start from. It certainly wasn't chosen, as in the okay. the, the three hundred. Yeah, because I've um, I had a drop out. I thought we were going to get through it today, but we didn't. I didn't notice it. <laughs> yeah, I did. Uh, it certainly wasn't chosen to be three hundred thousand exactly, uh, because the you know in, in, this is determined in terms of uh, kilometers and meters, which were themselves um, originated as, as a fraction of the circumference of the Earth. Um, so that you know they they themselves come from a completely different physical quantity uh, you take the earth and divide it up into small enough chunks and you've got a unit of length and that becomes a standard meter which i think is in paris still so um mm. uh so it's not chosen to be a round number uh, in fact i grew up um thinking it was uh, 186,000 kilo uh, sorry 186,000 miles per second that's that was the number that was ingrained in my mind uh, yeah. until uh quite late in my life because we've worked in miles yeah. uh, so it's and and it's um the speed of lights measured by 
you know, very accurate means these days. Uh, it was first measured back in the 1600s by a Danish astronomer whose name was Dr. Roma. Uh, yeah. He looked at the moons of Jupiter and said they're doing some funny stuff here. And he figured out that that was because he was not allowing for the travel time of the light from one side of the Jupiter orbit to the other for these moons. Uh -huh. Very clever, clever. stuff. Yeah. Uh, he made the first measurement, which actually wasn't, wasn't too bad. So, uh, yes, so um, nice question, Robert. Uh, and It is what it is. And I suppose a uh, another culture in another universe or another part of this universe would have their own way of measuring things and their number would be whatever the number is. Exactly. And it would be the same speed. Yep. There is one nice aspect of the speed of light, though, uh, and it kind of mixes up the kilometres and, um, and imperial units. Uh, in one billionth of a second, light travels one foot. Oh, <laughs> uh, there you go. Yeah. That's an exact. And that's because it's well, it's 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 you know thirty centimeters roughly is is a foot. Yeah. Uh, so that's that's how it all works. Uh, in a billionth of a second, light travels one foot. All right. Very good. So, <laughs> yeah, not very helpful, but very good. <laughs> Sometimes useful. <laughs> yes, maybe. Mm. All right. Uh, thank you, Robert. Really appreciate it. Thanks uh, for all the questions uh, that came in today. Um, we've uh, really enjoyed ourselves. There's a bit of homework to do. I'm sure Fred's written down notes so he can chase them up for next week. But uh, great to get your questions. And please keep them coming in. Uh, you can send them to us via our website, spacenutspodcast.com or spacenuts.io. And you can send us text or audio questions through the AMA tab or through the uh, button on the right-hand side of the home screen that says, send us your audio question or comment or whatever it says. I can't remember. Uh, and one more thing, if you're a social media user, particularly on LinkedIn.com, LinkedIn, uh, we're on there as well. And we need uh, a minimum of 150 followers so that we can do our um, recordings live to LinkedIn. We already go live via YouTube and through Patreon and through Facebook, but we want to add LinkedIn, but we need to get to 150 users. So if you're a LinkedIn user, just use their search engine and look for bytes.com, B-I-T-E-S-Z.com. That's the easiest way. The other way is link.com slash company slash bytes, I think. Yeah, something like that. But uh, just do bytes.com. Uh, in your search engine for LinkedIn and uh, and follow us there. And when we get to 150, we'll be able to offer um, live studio recordings uh, as we as we record them, is what I'm trying to say, which we tried to do today, except for the internet dropouts. Still haven't solved that one. Fred, thank you as always. Uh, you are fantastic. We really appreciate it. <laughs> uh, it's very kind of you to say so, Andrew. <laughs> Wish I knew more answers than I do, but never mind. That's all. Well, if we knew all the answers, we wouldn't have to be here. Oh, no, we suppose. wouldn't. That's right. <laughs> mm. Exactly. All right. Thanks, Fred. We'll catch you next time. Yes, looking forward to it. Fred Watson, astronomer at large, part of the team here at Space Nuts, and thanks to Hugh in the studio because. And from me, Andrew Dunkley, thanks for, thanks for listening, thanks for watching, and we'll catch you on the very next episode of Space Nuts. Bye-bye. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Available at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or your favourite podcast player. You can also stream on demand at Bytes.com. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.